to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to COVID, business continuity, crisis management, well-being, anything that can help you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Alternatively, you can find me at alexfullick.com. It's that time again. Episode number 27, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's our chat with Regina Phelps. Regina, welcome back. Alex, what a surprise. Nice to see you. <laughs> you, you say that now. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. What can I say? We'll have fun. Uh, We will. We've got a couple of topics uh, to talk about. We're going to continue from uh, a previous conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to continue on uh, talking about cyber exercises. But uh, first, I think we want to just do an update on on the wonderful world of COVID. My, 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 my. So uh, Omicron, the latest variant, as you know, has been having babies. And now we're, you know, not only BA1 was the original Omicron, then we got into BA2, which is 30% more infectious than Omicron, which was 70% more infectious than Delta. And now we have uh, different versions of BA2.1. And then we also have BA.4.5, which have now been listed as uh, variants of concern in several countries, not yet by the WHO or by the United States, but Yes. Uh, so here in the United States, cases are going up. I mean, just look at my stats here. We're basically uh, going up 57% every day. Uh, we had 100,000 positive cases yesterday. But remember that here in the United States, uh, a lot of testing facilities have closed. A lot of home testing is going on where there's no reporting. So I, I mean, I speculate with some of my epidemiologist friends, this could be four or five, six times higher than it is right now. Um, Hospitalizations are going up, so they're up 29%. And now we have about 24,000 people in the hospital, 2,000 people in ICUs. Our deaths are still going down, but that's a real lagging indicator. That takes four to six weeks before you actually have a death, usually. And so that's down about 17%. So um, we could be doing better here in the U.S. Uh, we are still stuck at 66% of our population with having two doses of vaccine, which now, as we well know with the new variants, two doses is is got fairly significant waning immunity is not very effective. You definitely need a third dose. So if you're out there in the United States, you need to get a third dose. And if you're over 50, you might want to consider getting a fourth dose. Um, So here in the States, we are, oh my gosh, Alex, I hope we're not going to have a gigantic, we're going to have a big surge with numbers. I just hope it's not a lot of hospitalizations. What's going on around the United States before we talk about Canada is, oh my gosh, there's a lot of disease. And what we're all kind of focused on, of course, is uh, China. China, which is still kind of the big black box. We really don't know how many cases they're really having. Um, They only count deaths if there was nothing else going on, apparently, with a person. So their death rates are still relatively low. Shanghai has been in lockdown for five weeks. Uh, Beijing is in pieces and parts of lockdown. I have a friend of mine who actually sent out a list of things that are in her building. They have one person who goes out for stuff. She had 12 things on her list. She got one. Uh, so, and she'd been locked up for three weeks. So it's tough over there. And it will be interesting to see how that impacts President Xi and his reelection efforts and people that might be trying to unseat him. It's certainly having a huge impact on the supply chain globally. The rest of the world is, is lit up in different ways. Um, but as we talked about, actually, I think as we've talked about many times, people are over this, whether the virus is over us or not. 
Yeah. How about Canada? Well, before you, before I move on with Canada, I wanted to say last week, I, I, I was starting to think there was something in the air down in the U.S. because I had three interviews scheduled and all three people came down with uh, flu-like uh, symptoms. Not necessarily, not necessarily COVID, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, flu-like uh, illnesses. And some were more sick than others and had to reschedule things. And as I spoke with other people, they were saying, yeah, I'm just getting over something too. My niece has got COVID. Um, a couple of other people I know um, got right. sick or flu and had to stay home. Um, so there's something, even if it's not COVID, floating around that everyone's right. Getting. Right. Yeah. There is. Uh, and for, uh, probably I would say, to be honest with you, Alex, unless they're home testing, probably all of those people probably had COVID. There's been mm-hmm. very little flu and the flu season is for the most part way gone in the United States. Yeah. There's been some other respiratory viruses, but primarily those are childhood viruses like RSV. So I'm kind of betting that uh, all of those people that canceled probably had a version of COVID and just uh, some more serious than others. I've had several clients who have been very successful at avoiding it all this time, who embarrassingly have written me emails in the last week or so saying, oh my God, I got COVID. I can't believe how that happened to me. And, you know, if you're out in public and you're not masking, uh, your chances are really good. And I will tell you, I live in one of the most highly vaccinated parts of the United States, around 89% vaccinated. And we have our caseload is astronomical for us. I think we had 550 cases yesterday, which for San Francisco is huge. And we have about 70 people in the hospital, which for us is also really huge. So there's a lot of disease going on out there. And if you're out and not masked, your chances of getting it are really good. Yeah, I still wear my mask when I go out into you know the world. <laughs> yeah, so do I, yeah. so do I. Because I, I just don't know anymore, you know, and uh, who knows what's going on. Um, but here in Canada, uh, we're kind of experiencing the same thing you are in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we are having people being sick, um, but I don't believe anyone is reporting most of it. Right. Um, trying to get test cases or test kits or anything like that is next to impossible and has been for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people who were uh, knocking on their neighbor's door and borrowing one of their neighbor's uh, kids' kits because mm. they couldn't get one. You know, and they, you go to some of the drugstores or pharmacies and they have signs, no test kits here, no test kits oh, here. Well. You know, so nobody can get anything. So if It also tells you how much disease is out there because if everybody's looking for one, that usually thinks, mm, you know, something's happening. Yeah, yeah, right. you would, eh? And I, I think a lot of people um, that are getting you know, sniffles or a headache, are kind of assuming that they've got some sort of COVID, so they're just staying home. Yep. It's not yep. getting reported to anybody. You know, yep. yeah, I was sick for a few days last week, so I just stayed home all week and worked from home. And to your point, like you said earlier, people are just living with it now. Right. You know, that, that's just it. And serious cases, um, it's not getting reported a lot much here anymore mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, daily cases and things like that because so many test centers and places like that have closed. <laughs> and even news uh, outlets aren't really updating their right. statistics uh, very much anymore. Even Health Canada seems to be, uh, you know, lagging a little bit as well. Um, but I know there are some hotspots going on because a week or two ago, uh, Toronto was reporting an uptick. And usually if Toronto starts reporting an uptick, the surrounding area and anybody right. who went through right. Toronto starts right. feeling it because, you know, they're the airport here is a massive hub and Mm -hmm. it's, it goes all across North America. So, you know, if Toronto experiences something, it it spreads. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure over the next little while, we're going to see our numbers uh, start spiking on some level, Mm -hmm. at least what's being reported, you know, and to your point too, with uh, so many people that do catch it and it's not getting reported there's more out there than what we we see and what is being reported and what possibly more than what hospitals are experiencing too. Right. Because people who are not doing anything who might normally go straight to the hospital now are staying home for a week, two weeks, and then going to the hospital. Right. Right. And hopefully it's not too late for them in those kind of situations. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, when, when this happened in the 1918 flu, I, I thought it was odd. And looking back at the history, uh, the worst wave was 1920. That's where the vast majority actually of deaths did occur. And the public was over it. And it sort of didn't matter what people said. And I thought that was weird, right? I didn't quite mm-hmm. understand that. But now after having lived through two and a half years of a pandemic, and seeing that people are over it, I get it. I mean, I personally would like to be over it, but I'm still masking and still doing all those things and not yeah. going a lot of places. But I think I can see the social uh, um, just like done. And that's certainly what we see here in the United States, pretty much everywhere. And I think in a lot of countries across the, the world, it's the same thing, sadly. Well, you, you mentioned US, Canada, China. Uh, are there any other places where... COVID is rearing its ugly head again? Yeah, I mean, so Asia in particular. So you look at South Korea, but also places like Germany. Germany is really still lit up. And so I, I, there are little pockets. And I think what happens is as the different variants start moving from region to region, depending on their level of vaccine uptake, then you'll see it begin to sort of peak up. Um, and again, most places around the world have very few restrictions. And probably the only one that has a lot is China. <laughs> We just has enough for everybody. Well, that I, you know that that's just it. Everything is open now, right? You know, right. I, I, I don't think there are any restrictions anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, though I will say, uh, the uh, we've noticed more uh, young kids start getting sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is um, the request to the premier of Ontario, at least, to put back in the mandates for schools to mm-hmm. wear masks. Mm-hmm. But you know, once you've taken that, you know, uh, that off the table, it's really hard to all of a sudden to get everybody to put them back on. That is, I mean, that's that's definitely the case here in the United States. Pediatric illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to rise more than any other time in the pandemic. And in fact, we are averaging about one pediatric death a day. And so, I think our current count of young children who have died—that's under the age of eighteen. Um, is uh, about 1,100, many deaths under the age of five. And what's really tragic about that, of course, is that everybody keeps saying, oh my gosh, kids don't get COVID or they don't get really sick. But many kids do get sick and they seem to be much more um, susceptible to the Omicron variants than the previous strains we had. And here in the United States, uh, vaccines are still not available under the age of five. Uh, And so, you know, there are a lot of parents that are frankly really anxious uh, that have these young children and they are are concerned about taking them out and about. And I understand that because it is a big deal. And some people say may say, well, gosh, 1100 deaths isn't that bad. Well, first of all, any kid that dies has got to be incredibly tremendous. I mean, sad for anybody to die, but for a child to die, of course, it's always much more heartfelt, right? And then secondarily, people say, well, gosh, kids die of the flu. Yeah, but on an average, 55 kids in the United States die every year of the flu. So that's 110. And we've already had 1,100 kids die of COVID. So I don't get the comparison. Uh, Kids can get seriously ill with COVID and they can die. And what about, uh, and I know we've talked about this before, I'm also hearing and seeing reports about long COVID. Mm. Now, not fears of long COVID, but appearances now of people experiencing things, um, you know, two years after they had COVID or something. Right. Oh, my gosh. Really being seen and felt. Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. That is going to be such a problem. So depending on how you view it and what studies you've seen, uh, I've seen long COVID stats, the very lowest of 10% of the people get COVID, any kind of COVID, significant COVID, asymptomatic COVID, et cetera, uh, get long COVID. And I've seen the numbers as high as about 50%. I think the 50% is highly inflated, but certainly 10 to 25 or 30 is not. And these are people presenting with a significant number of illnesses, shortness of breath, heart palpitations, memory issues, cognitive impairment. Um, It's actually going to be quite terrifying, to be honest with you, Alex, over time. Because here we are two and a half years out, we're get, we have a large number of people that can't work. We have a large number of people who can't walk up a flight of stairs, walk to the end of the, of the block. Uh, those are people that are not 80 plus. These are people that are 20 or 30 or 40 uh, that are going to have disabilities. And we're going to have a lot of people 
who are not able to work, who might be this way, frankly, for the rest of their life. Not only is that a human loss, oh my God, it's a huge societal loss and an expense that's not just here in the United States, it's in every country. And so that's going to be a big issue to deal with. And here in the United States, they've been working on getting studies done. There's a lot of clinics set up, but it's not being done as as soon as it could be or should be. And certainly it's not producing the kind of results that we need. There needs to be lots of studies about what could help remedy this or at least improves people's functioning so they can live a life. What's scary is because we're coming out of the, hopefully coming out of COVID or a global pandemic, we've got burnout with doctors, researchers, nurses, anyone on the front line in the healthcare industry. And now we've got twice as many people that could be coming along with long-term illnesses. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is, this is a time bomb. And, and I remember we started talking about that initially once long COVID became something that was, was coming into the awareness, which happened really soon after probably eight or nine months after COVID started. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of discussion already about what's the long-term impact societally and families and communities when you have a lot of people that are in the prime of their life who have a long-term chronic illness and are not productive, not able to work. Uh, the impact is huge, huge. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be scary to see what what happens. And and you used a perfect word, time bomb. Mm-hmm. It is. I, I, I think it is. It's going to be a time bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, which is one of the um, reasons I don't want to get COVID. By the way, me either. I mean, nobody yeah. wants to get COVID. Okay, but I don't. I mean, I, I've seen enough of what the impacts are to long and long term disease. I just don't want to go there myself. Yeah, I like I said, I still wear my mask when I have to go to the grocery store. I go when it opens, so there's hardly anyone there. Mm-hmm. If anybody, um, and I have, I never used to shop with a gro- grocery list. I used to be one of those people. Oh, that looks good. That looks good. Now you're in and out, <laughs> now, right? Now I have a list in and out, and it's grouped. So when I'm in the uh, you know, dairy area, I know I need that, that, and that next. And you know, no standing around, no uh, window, no chit chatting. So, yeah, no chit chatting. Just you know, <laughs> done. You yeah, know, like, as it should be. Here. I mean. Why expose yourself when you don't need to? Yeah. So on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Regina Phelps, and you're not going to want to miss what we're going to talk about in our second segment. Ah, Oh, that's a good lost leader. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scary one. You don't want to miss it. (laughs) We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. 
Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. We are talking once again with Regina Felt. Regina, like I said at the end of the first segment, uh, we have an interesting topic. I only heard about it for the first time today. Mm. So this is completely new for me. Mm. And to be honest, when I first heard it, I kind of chuckled and just kind of, well, what the heck is that? You know, mm-hmm. with a smile on my face. And the smile disappeared really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that is monkeypox. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about this. So um, if anybody is curious, just for your listener population, if any of you are interested in in diseases, you have a weird kind of personality like I do, uh, I would would send all of your listeners to a website called Pro, P-R-O, Med, M-E-D, Mail, M-A-I-L.org. It's an infectious disease site. That is, that is essentially organized by Harvard and the Infectious Disease Society. Now, what it does is that you can go to promedmail.org for free and sign up to be informed about diseases that are occurring around the world. And you have kind of a laundry list. They'll say human ones only, plants, animals, all of the above. So every day, uh, ProMedMail sends me a list of all the horrible things that are happening around the world. So uh, starting about mm, a month ago, there was this outbreak that occurred in the UK of monkeypox. So let's talk first of all about monkeypox. As the name implies, it is a relative of smallpox. And as the name also implies, it primarily has infected primates, monkeys. Now, uh, its, its source is usually West Africa. And uh, how it has been used in the United States before historically in research was part of the creation of smallpox vaccines. So um, it was first originally discovered in the 1950s, and it was primarily with individuals that were in West Africa in kind of the, the, the bushmeat markets and other places like that. And what they started seeing are these pox marks on people when they were around these particular monkeys. And there's several versions of monkeys where this uh, disease was common. And if you look, if you Google, if your listeners Google uh, Google uh, monkeypox, you'll see that there are just awful, looking very much like smallpox, rashes are in the trunk, sometimes you know into the face and just pock marks everywhere. Now, this particular disease has been uh, rare outside of Africa, but it has occurred. And if you go back and do a search on it, you'll see that it's occurred since the, since the 1960s, only kind of occasionally in a variety of places. So um, starting about a month ago, all of a sudden in the UK uh, on promedmail.org, I started seeing that there were cases of monkeypox. And this has happened periodically with immigrants of Africa to the UK. Uh, pretty isolated and, you know, might be one case and that it would kind of go away. Uh, Well, over the last couple of weeks, there's actually been several cases. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then there was a a note just a couple of days ago that it was uh, a group of men uh, of which uh, they were all gay men, uh, but they're not sure how that uh, ties into the transmission. Uh, And then um, it was in a couple of other places in the UK, not just London. Okay, that's interesting. So then uh, yesterday, it came to the United States. And then today, it was announced that it was in Spain and Portugal and Canada. Canada. I've also seen that it's in France. So why the heck is monkeypox, which has always been in West Africa, kind of more difficult to transmit all of a sudden moving around? That gives one room for pause. I would ask your listeners to Google monkeypox and look at sites like the CDC 
Look at some images to give you a sense. It does look exactly, if you were to look at somebody like smallpox, it is not, however, historically lethal. And Africa kills one out of 10 people who get it, pretty much. Now, this particular illness, how is it spread? Well, it's spread by what is called respiratory droplets. Now, historically, respiratory droplets, and you might remember that term when we were starting initially talking about COVID, Mm -hmm. as being when you cough or sneeze, those are big droplets that you can see, right? So they're big, they don't go very far, and they fall. Now, the reason I'm sort of hedging my bet here is that COVID, as well as several other respiratory illnesses like the flu, everybody said it was always respiratory droplets. But in research in COVID, after the end of the first year, it was proven it was an aerosol transmission. Aerosol means very fine particles of moisture, not these big droplets. Why I'm just saying that is, is that they say respiratory droplets. They said that incorrectly about COVID for almost 18 months. And it took, you know, a zillion scientists beating on WHO and CDC to say, yes, it's aerosol. So because this has not been studied in a new light, they say droplet. I don't know if that's really true. And that's just my professional opinion. It could be, but it may not be. (laughs) The other way it's spread is bodily fluids. And also if bodily fluids, which could be any sort of fluid, so semen, uh, urine, feces, uh, vomit, uh, you know, blood, all of that uh, is another source of transmission. Uh, and then um, in any object that is soiled with those. So transmission by air, transmission by bodily fluids, and then cloth infected or fabric or some object affected by bodily fluids. So that's significant. Now, the chances of this being a huge risk to human health, I have to say, has got to be relatively low. And everybody I've talked to so far says the risks are very low. But what I find odd is the fact that all of a sudden you've seen it now in six countries. In a disease that historically had been very few countries other than West Africa, and you could always trace it to somebody who had recently traveled. What they've documented in the UK is community transmission, which all of us now should know what that means. Community transmission means, you know, I I pick it up from somebody, then I am in a store and I give it to you, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is something that is unusual. It certainly should make people uh, at least listen in the back of their minds. And I think the other thing, what it says to all of us is that what are called zoonotic infections, zoonotic infections are those illnesses that come from animals are increasingly an issue in our world. Why is that? Because we are living in an environment where climate change has caused substantial changes to many environmental landscapes, where people are moving into areas, deforesting them, the animals that used to live there, move other places. Many times when they do that, they end up living in close proximity to humans. In addition to that, things like the bushmeat trade in Africa, and certainly the wet markets in Asia are filled with live animals teeming with God knows what. So every time you have that opportunity for an interaction between a wild animal and a human, there's always this chance of a zoonotic infection. You, you got me thinking because over the last decade, decade and a half, swine flu, bird flu, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just talked about um, you know, monkeys from West Africa. Uh, um, there's the, the bats or mm-hmm. I don't know if it was ever proven, 100% proven, but. There are a zillion viruses in bats. They carry so yeah. many diseases. You know, and, and so many other different things that, wow, you know, the more we encroach on their territories, and the more climate change happens, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of, I don't like saying this, but we're kind of doing it to ourselves. Uh, we're, we're, amen. We're trying to trigger all of this. <laughs> amen. Uh, I have traveled extensively all over the world. I've been over 100 countries, and I happen to like to travel to really weird, out-of-the-way places. I've been in 70% of all the countries in Africa. And I will tell you that what I've seen over the years of traveling there is a profound difference 
primarily because of the environment changing so rapidly. And again, the movement of people into areas that historically were just a critter place. I've seen that also in Asia and the destruction of many forests for the creation of palm oil plantations. And so, uh, yeah, we are, we are kind of doing this to ourselves. And, and there's been a lot of angst about this in the infectious disease world in the area of zoonotic infections. We're seeing another uh, potential pandemic in front of our faces right now, which I didn't mention, not monkeypox, thank God, but uh, avian flu. You mentioned avian influenza briefly. Here in the United States, in Canada, uh, in many parts of the world, there is a ton of avian influenza. And so, uh, again, starting over in Asia originally, but remember, birds are migra- many birds are migratory. So as they move across their flyway, uh, if they are infected, they are defecating and stopping and eating and you know exchanging fluids and doing all that kind of stuff, creating a situation where captive flocks, uh, turkeys, chickens in particular, have been, there's been many uh, poultry farms in the United States where they've had to kill all of their animals in the last uh, 90 days and in Canada as well, yeah. right? And I just want to remind people that people say, well, okay, that's just birds. Well, that's true. It is just birds. But let's be fair here that many influenzas uh, in birds are easily transmitted to humans. So you get somebody who's either a wildlife person who's handling or caring for wild uh, birds who have influenza, um, who are not properly masked and, uh, you know, wearing their appropriate amount of protection. Same thing for farmers or ranchers who actually are in captive flocks. Uh, and if they're culling birds, killing them, lots of, lots of fluids, lots of aerosol, lots of all of that where the virus is able to easily uh, transmit. So, uh, and I want to remind listeners that in, uh, what started the big fear of, fear of avian influenza in the 2000s was, um, was bird flu in Asia and the fear is that was going to be our next pandemic. And that happened really from 2005 to 2009. And when the 2009 pandemic happened, it turned out to be swine instead of birds. But it's the same thing. And so, you know, we always think, well, you know, this is never going to happen. We lived through COVID. Well, yeah, we have. But there's a lot of other things that you should be thinking about. So don't put away that pandemic plan or don't. You should think about rewriting the one you've got after your experience here because the avian influenza thing hasn't, hasn't, you know, it's still only in birds, but there has been several people in most countries where one or two people have gotten it from the birds they were killing. And the problem with that is if it gets into their body and it mutates at all, uh, and it doesn't take much, as we all know now, then it, all of a sudden, if it can be transferred to you, then that's how the pandemic starts. It comes to me, I get sick, it does something in me. I mutate. We all got mutations down now. Then it goes to you and then we're off and that could happen. And that's, uh, that's not to be, you know, kind of grandiose. That's a real threat. Yeah. Um, Any, anything more to say? Cause I know we got a big big topic to finish off. So yeah, uh, I think that's good. Let's stop there. Okay. Uh, Enough with the, uh, the, uh, the frown diseases. Yeah. Yeah. The diseases. Right. On that, on that note, we'll take a break uh, for our second segment, and we'll be right back. And we're going to start uh, finishing off where we talked about last month, which was uh, cyber exercises. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. 
The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back for our final segment. We are talking with Regina Phelps once again, and we're going to continue a talk that we had last month about cyber exercises. Right. Regina. So- Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, boy, what a timely topic this is because of the, um, the cyber threats from the Ukraine war. Uh, I just cannot emphasize how important it is for people to be doing really well-designed cyber exercises in your organization. Uh, last time we talked through kind of the 10 things you had to have in place in order to do a successful exercise. Today, I want to really peel back as, and hopefully we can get through all of it today, um, uh, what you need to do. Now, there's something called I call the secret sauce in uh, a cyber exercise. <clears throat> Normally, when I design exercises, your goal is to progress the exercise uh, enough that people can actually feel like they've kind of gotten, gotten through the biggest part or they've actually been able to come out the other side and be successful. I don't do that in a cyber exercise. The best <laughs> thing you can do is what I call my secret sauce is I want them to look like this. I really want them to be crying at the end. And I'll tell you why that is so darn important. If you don't have this sort of feeling what you'll have is that they'll leave that exercise and they'll say, boy, that was awful, you know, but it wasn't that bad. My clients who have had catastrophic events, it is beyond awful. And it goes on not just for a day or two or a week, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. So I want them to feel like this because I want them to understand, you know, get the fear of God in them, if you will, that this could happen to them. And what do they have in place for it? So that's what I call the secret sauce, make them miserable. Because technically, when everything stops working, um, this is what people are going to do. They're going to go to their plans. And I want to ask you, when they reach for their business continuity plan, their disaster recovery plan, or their crisis communications plan, or their crisis management plan, what is in there to help them deal with this? And I will tell you, um, most people find nothing, and in particular, in business continuity. I ask my clients, okay, this is what you need to start doing now. In every business continuity plan, I expect to see a section that includes three things. And the header of that section is sustained technology outage. I want to emphasize the word sustained technology outage. So what can you do without technology? Everybody will say nothing. But I will tell you, if push came to shove and you don't have nothing, for 30 days, you're going to find some way to at least begin to keep track of stuff. It's better if you had that in your business continuity plan now. So I ask every one of my clients, they need to basically come up with the answers to three things. How do you can do it? How do you continue your business at all manually? Can you do that? For a lot of companies, they can't. Is it messy? It's awful. It's complicated. It's time consuming, but you can do it and you will do it. If you have nothing. Second thing is how around long enough. They used to do it. Right. Oh my gosh. My banking clients say that to me all the time. You know, we need just one of our older employees to come back and remind us how we used to do it. (laughs) Right. Right. So you you need to be able to do something manually. 
Secondly, how do you deal with data loss? Now, in some cases, people's backups fail. They don't use sufficient air gapping. They don't have quarantine backups and they lose a percentage of their data. Well, if you're, I mean, how would you make it up if you lost a day or two or a week or longer? I mean, think about that. There needs to be a process where you are thinking seriously, how would I deal with data loss and what just can't I live without? And the third thing is really about data integrity. How do I validate when it's given back to me that the information is correct? What do I do to actually make that kind of an assessment? So those are the three things I would expect to see, want to see, beg to see in my clients under in a business continuity plan under the big umbrella of sustained technology outage. Because everyone, Alex, writes their business continuity plan that matches the RTOs that they have. And they never, ever think that they won't match, which, of course, is ridiculous. Yeah. So you have to really rethink the RTOs, the RPOs. You have to look at the downtime and you have to look at the loss of data. I cannot emphasize that enough. And so we all, of course, as we all know, RTOs, I mean, essentially what you're looking at is how much downtime is tolerable. No one, I mean, people pull that number out and they never think they're really going to have to live with it, but they need to really look at it. And secondarily, you know, how much loss is tolerable. Uh, in some financial institutions, the RPO would be zero, uh, but they don't have plans for that. And certainly in any kind of cyber related event. Uh, and when you talk about downtime, I think I can't, you know, how long could you live without systems? Some people, I mean, the longest client that I, I can talk about publicly is Merck, and they live for 31 days without systems. 31 days. I mean, wow. think about that. Uh, so, yeah, that could happen. And I think, uh, again, with the Ukraine war and the significant increase in cyber attacks every year because there's so much money in it, this is a big deal. And again, we talked about data loss. You know, if you had to go back to your last clean backup, how would you make it up? Many of my clients have started doing things like screen shares, trying to do things about literally how they're capturing things, securing it in, in a quarantine uh, situation on a daily basis. So if they had to go back and make stuff up, they could. But that takes thought and planning. And then, as I mentioned, the data validation, I just can't emphasize that enough as well, especially in, in companies where numbers are important, which is most of us, right? So think about manufacturing, think about orders, think about finances, uh, banking, et cetera. So it's really, really important. And what I would say to you is you can simulate all of this really in an exercise. Um, and it has to be a well-designed exercise, but you can make this real experience give people the oh my God moment, which is what I'm looking for in every cyber exercise that I personally design. The first thing you have to really talk about is who are you actually uh, doing this for? Who are the players, as we use in my terminology, who are the players in the exercise? You could be doing this for business units. For example, you could be doing instead of a kind of a simple tabletop in a business unit setting, you could actually use a complete loss of uh, systems, ransomware, that kind of thing. What about technology? It's a very different kind of exercise when it's an incident response exercise. What about crisis management on the tactical side? Very different because you're overseeing what's happening across the enterprise. And then for the executives, the strategic issues that they'll be doing with. A lot of times people say, well, I just really want to know if they're going to pay the ransom. Well, you know, I'll just tell you right straight away. Everybody's going to pay it probably, unless you're absolutely positively sure that your backups are 100% solid they're air-gapped, that you're not going to lose data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's a lot more they need to be thinking about. There's some big strategic issues that they need to chew on, and you need to serve it up to them. So you could do an exercise that includes all of these. Most commonly, the exercises that I personally do are crisis management team exercises. I do a lot of exercises for executives, which are much more on the strategic level. And then also those exercises, especially the crisis exercise, can then be used to design business unit exercises. So many of my clients will have us do a crisis management exercise, but because of the detail and the narrative that we've prepared, they can actually then use that to run their own tabletops in their business units. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the secret of the best exercise is to leave them in misery. And I know that sounds really <laughs> funny, but I want them to cry when I leave. Some of my best compliments is one of this when an executive sends me an email like a week later saying, I haven't slept for a week, it's like, great, 
<laughs> like I, I got through my, to you. <laughs> yeah, I did my job and everybody's happy. So, um, so there are critical questions that you need to ask when you're really doing the design. And this is really the question that I talk about all the time is why are we doing this? Now, what do I mean by that? In my first book on exercise design, I spent a whole chapter talking about this because most designers don't know why they're really doing it. So let me explain. Many people will call me and say, Regina, I want to do a ransomware exercise. I said, that's great. Why, we, why do you want to do that? Well, my executive wants to do that. Okay, well, that's interesting. Why does he want to do it? Because the board wants him to do it. Well, that's interesting. Well, why do they want that? Well, we don't know if we can recover. Well, tell me more about that. Tell me more about your backups. Tell me more about your strategies. Tell me more about your processes. And then, and then it's like peeling an onion. If you simply stop after, oh, I want a ransomware exercise, you know nothing. When I talk to a CEO, I say, why do you want that? Well, I'm really concerned that our uh, communications team maybe doesn't have the processes in place to be able to respond rapidly. I'm really concerned that maybe our business backups aren't sufficient. I'm really concerned that we don't have the recovery strategies to really help us if we have no technology. Okay, what did I learn? I learned a bunch. I learned where, how my exercise is going to be designed. I've learned my objectives. I've learned the kind of injects we're going to have. But if I just simply take somebody's comment at face value, I know nothing. I can design you the best exercise in the world, but if I don't understand the why, I can't get there. Yeah. So for us, this is peeling the onion. I cannot emphasize that enough. It tells you everything. And sometimes I will have five or six conversations with different people uh, asking different versions of the question why over and over and over again. And it tells me everything I need to know. It tells me what the goal is. It tells me the scope. It tells me every objective I'm going to have. It tells me the kind of injects I need to have written in order to produce the results I'm looking for. And it frankly keeps us on track because I am producing to those results. But simply because I asked what I call the silly little question. Really. What if if somebody answers, oh, because audit says so? Uh, Well, why does audit want to have that? Well, and then, so let's talk to, why why do you want that audit? Well, because I don't think they can recover. Oh, really? Why don't you think they can recover? You just have to keep peeling it back. Yeah. Because audit, I mean, that's like saying my CEO wants a ransomware exercise. It's the same thing. Well, I, audit has a reason. You don't know what it is. And so if you don't know why somebody wants something, you can design a great exercise and it still doesn't get to what they wanted to know. Yeah. So audit's very helpful, but that's not the answer to the question. So the other thing is that in most cyber exercises, you can probably engage all of the players of a crisis manager process with sometimes the exception of facilities and physical security, unless you actually end up impacting things like building uh, life safety systems that are ran on, a, on, the, on the computer or things such as uh, badging and, and cameras and things like that. But you, if sometimes you can also get all of those people involved, depending on what kind of technology they use and also what kind of design of the exercise, what you're actually damaging, encrypting or, or stealing, if you will. So, um, The exercise designer really does not need to know exactly how the security penetration actually occurred. I just need to know that it's possible. And there's a zillion ways, of course, phishing being probably the most common, but you could have somebody that that actually has a thumb drive. Oh my God, I still have clients that use thumb drives. I can't believe that's even possible. Watering hole issues, third-party vendors, there's a zillion ways that somebody could get into your systems. I just need to know that it's possible. Uh, And that's the really important issue. So the type of exercise, when you're looking at an exercise, uh, there's three kinds of exercises that you should consider designing. Uh, One is an advanced, the second is a functional exercise, and the last one is a full scale. Uh, An advanced tabletop is very different than a basic tabletop. A basic tabletop, I rarely do, but what those are essentially are exercises that are delivered by slides. Everybody hears the narrative all at once. it's really a pretty straightforward exercise and there's no engagement with simulators. And what you see in these three kinds of exercises is every one of them has a simulation team. At minimum, you have to have IT simulators to make a cyber exercise work because I need somebody to uh, you know, speak to power about, if you will, about this issue. When somebody says, I fixed something or we did this or we did that, I need this technology design team saying, yeah, you tried to reboot that server, but it didn't work. I need somebody to push back 
and really stay true to the narrative. And so I always use my IT simulators uh, in an exercise, and I will often use business simulators to play out the business unit injects as well. So the, the thing, I, again, going back to the goal of the exercise, so when you build an exercise document, which is called ex- technically an exercise plan, uh, it should have a variety of point components to it. And the first one would be the exercise goal, which answer, you know, and you got that goal by simply answering the question, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. So it's a brief, short uh, document, a brief, short sentence that talks about the overarching goal of the exercise, and it drives all of the design. All the objectives fit underneath that, and so it's it's um, it's pretty straightforward. Now, you may not wish to have a goal that's public about a cyber exercise, but I will just tell you, most of the exercises I do that are actually in confidence until the day of the exercise, and a cyber exercise, I don't care if people know about it in advance or not. Because there's no way that they're going to be prepared for it. So <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, uh, they can be prepared. They can do all they want. So the goal basically is going to be finding out the key, what the key players want to get out of the exercise. And I do that by usually interviewing a few people, a crisis leader, the incident commander, some business unit folks. Um, depends on who wants the exercise. But I always talk to a few people. I want to dr- dig really deeply about the question of why. Uh, and so a very a simple example of a, a cyber breach kind of goal would be, you know, assess the ability of this crisis management team to manage a major cybersecurity breach or a ransomware attack or, or whatever. So it's very, very, very straightforward. Then there's all the issues of artificiality. So you, two minutes left. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I'll talk about, oh, yeah. See, I could, I, I spent three hours talking about this. So let me stop there and we could, we'll continue on we'll next continue. time. Why not? We'll <laughs> continue on. This will be the longest. This will be the longest ongoing thing that we've ever done. <laughs> well, we yeah. have stopped talking about diseases, honey. That's the problem. Well, every time we chat, there's something more to say about it. You know, this know. this month was monkeypox. You know. Yeah, yeah. I do want to say that that you know, by the time they string all these uh, sessions together, which maybe it looks like we'll end up doing another one or two, um, I I cannot emphasize the importance of a well-designed exercise, and so. I'm going to be doing a workshop on ransomware exercise in Canada in November. At the Continuity Resilience Today conference, of which I'm, I will be there because they're just down the road from me. Right. So uh, I haven't so heard if, if I'm Canada, speaking come yet, and see me. but uh, I, I will be there. So we will be touching base and go for dinner or something. So <laughs> we, we, that sounds great. We will. <laughs> okay. So well, we'll pick up where we left off. Yeah, we will. Why not? And We've come to the end of the show. Thanks again, Regina, you know, sharing all your insights. Uh, really appreciate it, as always. Thank and you. It's great to be with you, as always. Yeah, and I, I really can't wait to actually see you face-to-face or mask-to-mask, I should right, say. Right, right. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Regina, and everybody listening and watching. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.